Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is my good friend, Jeremy. What is going on, dude? It is, uh, it's going. It's going. It's ch- <laughs> I'm, I'm chilling. I'm just ready to, I'm ready to rock. Yeah. Ready to talk some LB. Absolutely. And we're on a time crunch, which is <laughs> normally kind of not the thing, but when you're trying to jam through a book and get it out uh-huh. to, to meet everyone else's read-along, yeah, we are on a timetable. Well, this is, that's kind of fun to say, because we got the book in early May. And we recorded the first two episodes like right away. And then we just got super busy, like life got in the way. And so now the book is out and now we're recording and we haven't finished the book. So we're actually, as if you listen to the first two parts, we're reading and recording these in chunks. So people have now surpassed us, even though we had the book literally like three, <laughs> like two or three months before everyone else did. Yeah. Well, that's all right. We'll still get it done. We're going to get it done. And we're grateful you're here. Uh, I've got some really nice messages the last couple weeks just saying thank you for doing these podcasts because the point of them is just to be inclusive, be part of the community, to just to have someone uh, to listen to, to talk to, to engage with because... Uh, Some of the messages we've got, Jeremy, I've just said, hey, like, you know, when is your next podcast coming out? Because none of my friends or family read these books. And it's just really cool because that was like why we're doing this. Because normally our normal routine of our podcasts are kind of let it be out for a while, kind of sit in deep thought of it, record uh, at a different pace and a different kind of structure. So this is just like instant reaction podcasting. We've never done this before. No, never. And speaking of those those nice messages... um, your message about being their read-along friend um, mm-hmm. really landed. I, I mean, yeah. I'm not as sentimental, so I thought that was a bit dopey, but uh, people really <laughs> people enjoyed that. It. Yeah, <laughs> people it, responded to that. It's 100% like genuine you, too, which, yeah. is, which is perfect. We're your homies today. We are your read-along buddies. We are your friends. We want to hang out with you. Send us messages like people have been. Even if you're disagreeing with us, we'll respond. Have we gotten any hate mail? No, no hate mail yet. Not on my light. Yeah, I didn't see anything. Oh, I, I think we're going to though. Like uh, some of our Lysander takes are bound to be. Uh, what, I, I don't. Obviously, like we said, we haven't read the book. We don't know how it's going to end. Yes. We anticipate a major character death, but don't know who that might even be. Mm-hmm. Um, we haven't even conjectured between the two of us. Mm-hmm. But once we get there, um, it'll probably be spicy. Yeah, and we're we're trying not to talk about this book together. We're just trying to surprise each other with our takes on a podcast too, which is something we typically share our feelings and flush them out beforehand as well. So um, today we're covering part three, uh, which is called Tempest, but we're actually breaking that up into chunks because we realized that whole part of uh, that book was 39 full chapters. And we're like, there's no way we can cover 39 chapters in one podcast. We just think that's actually like irresponsible. Um, So we're just going to be doing chapters 37 through 56 and then we'll do another episode in the future that will include the other chapters of part three. Absolutely. Yeah. So um, 
Man, this is just instant reactions. This is big takeaways. But before we get to that, I want to change course for a second because, Jeremy, this is the first podcast that we've actually recorded and we're going to release since our Pierce Brown episode was live. So I want you to tell me something that you had a good time with, something maybe that wasn't on that podcast, that Lightbringer preview podcast that uh, happened maybe off the microphone when we were chatting with Pierce or just something about that experience that you really enjoyed. I think I enjoyed just how like personable Pierce was, yeah. uh, how friendly um, and genuinely excited uh, to talk about the material. It It's funny because it was a great interview and mm-hmm. this is not like a patting ourselves on the back thing. Like, but I, we did I, awesome. Thank you everyone. Yeah, exactly. No, I like it. watching it. I like listening back to it. Um, watching the YouTube version It's a very engaging interview, mm-hmm. but the second we were just in the hallway talking, it was like more exciting. It was like more yeah. intense. And I granted we were talking about some spoiler stuff. Uh, so it couldn't be on mic, but he was so jazzed to just be talking about, uh, material that excited him so much. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was just a blast to just chat with him and, and talk about our favorite parts and see how touched he was that the sections that he poured so much energy and himself uh, into writing had payoff with two of his big fans. Yeah, for sure. I think I mine is very similar to yours, but I'm going to do a, a slight spoiler here for chapter 17 okay. of, of Lightbringer. So we've already passed that. We've so already passed it's, that. It's okay That's, to spoil that but, one. <laughs> yeah, but I'm just for just anyone listening, just in case. Uh, so what happens is he pulls us out in the hallway. He's like, "Come on, we out of the hallway," because he's like so eager to talk about Lightbringer and where we were and how we felt about it. And he was really excited, like genuinely, like just so ready to talk about it with us. And then we we're just like raising our voices over one another. We're like yelling <laughs> at each other, but we're like, but we're all just jazzed. We're all pumped, and. I told him that chapter 17, which is the life center chapter, when he gives his speech to the 200 is the best prose he's ever written. Mm -hmm. And I said, it felt like a battle scene, but without razors or guns. He pulled back the sleeve. He was wearing long sleeves. (laughs) He put his arm right in front of my face and he showed me the hair standing up on his arm after I told him that compliment. (laughs) That's right. I thought that was really fun. And I wasn't even fanboying. I was just like telling him like earnestly, like, yo, this is, this is great. This is actually like, next level great from you. And he was just like, he was blown away by that sentiment. Um, so it was fun to just, yeah, it was fun to hang out with them. And so Pierce, if you are listening, if you stumble into this episode somehow, we just want to say, uh, we appreciate you. We appreciate you as a person and as an author. And we had a great time. Yeah, I think so too. Um, and definitely the personhood of Pierce <laughs> uh, was on full display. And I think that's something we've, we've gotten the authorship a lot and to experience him as a person and down to even just getting the hugs on a goodbye, yeah. <laughs> you know, was, was, yeah. just, was just pretty cool. Yeah, it was really cool. Um, so here we go. Spoilers coming for Lightbringer. Going to take a quick break. Coming back, chapters 37 through 56. Let's go. I love coffee because of its taste, but also for the caffeine. Sadly, I can't always have great tasting coffee in my pocket or my bag, but I can easily carry around Neuro's energy and focus gum with me wherever I am. This gum has a great peppermint or cinnamon flavor, and it also has 80 milligrams of natural caffeine per serving, giving you that necessary boost of energy wherever you need it. All Neuro mints and gum are vegan, sugar-free, aspartame-free, and gluten-free, 
And right now, when you order from their website, getneuro.com, you can get 15% off your next order with our promo code, HailReaperPod. Go get some today. You will not regret it. That's getneuro.com, G-E-T-N-E-U-R-O, and use our promo code at checkout to get 15% off your next order. Hail Reaper Pod. Jeremy, we're back and we have a new trend on the podcast where you tell us the chapter breakdown. <laughs> so why don't you tell us the chapter breakdown for this uh, this 19 chapter section here? Well, I mean, technically you covered it on the first episode and I just did. going into the yeah. preparation, I liked how you did that. And I think it sets up anticipation for sort of the weight that each character might get in our conversation. True. Um, and so I thought it might be missing from the second one. So I did it. So I guess that's now a trend. Now it's so, a trend. We got to keep doing it. Sure. I'll just continue. Why not? Uh, so in this one, we got two Lyria chapters, only two. Boo. Now I know, <laughs> I know in, in like the, I guess, second part of part three <laughs> Tempest yeah, that yeah. we'll be doing. That we will be doing. Uh, Lyria gets a little heavier. Cool. Good. But in this, I haven't looked. In this set of chapters, yeah, it's only two. Um, want, want, Mustang zero for the rest yeah, of the book. Boo. Mustang is not probably out of the story, but, but out of yeah, POV uh, chapters, sure. which I am kind of bummed about. I'm like, that's maybe that's one of my big takeaways that, that we could talk about. Uh, it's not on my list, but yeah, I've enjoyed her so much and the balance that she brings to these narratives. Mm -hmm. And it's like to just anticipate not having her through the rest of what I've thought to be vying for position number one of my favorite book is is kind of uh, discouraging. Well, I mean, I told you last episode that she was my favorite character in all of part two of the book. And so not having her kind of enter the follow-up of that, essentially, like the, these next set of chapters, it's a bummer. Yeah. she's She was a great character uh, in the time that we had her available. Yeah. Um, Lysander, six chapters. That's less than I thought. It is less. Yeah. Okay. And... For someone that has been getting a lot of play and that we've probably enjoyed the most up to this point, at least, uh -huh. uh, to see a little bit of a drop off uh, is interesting. But obviously, uh, with the number of chapters that you said, 19, this yeah. is very Darrow heavy. He ends up having uh, 12 of these chapters that we're going to really? cover. So it didn't he gets... feel like that. I guess at the end, there's like that of the end of the section we're talking about, there's like five chapters in a row that he has. It's mm -hmm. probably accounts for a lot, but those chapters are kind of short and they just bridge together so quickly. Yeah, I think so. So I guess like with the anticipation, the listeners can expect us to be uh, heavy on Darrow and Lysander and not talk too much about Mustang and Lyria. Yeah, but sorry. We'll, we'll try to sprinkle something in there. We'll, we'll, we'll see what happens. We're, we don't know what's going <laughs> no to happen No promises. Next. Yeah. I seriously don't know, but, but we'll try. Well, let's, let's talk about that. Let's just go right into it. What's one of the big takeaways you had from this set of chapters that was so like impressive to you? Aside from Mustang missing, <laughs> I think the obvious takeaway that I have is just kind of a an extension of our talk about um, brotherhood as it exists mm. in this book. And really starting to get this cohesion between um, Severo, Darrow, and Cassius. Uh, the three, as they're playing together, um, is just extremely good literature. And I think specifically, like, the, the Darrow-Severo dynamic um, is fascinating. I've I've never been, like, and of course, like, when we talk about these things, like, preface, I'm going to asterisk this thing right now. Okay. <laughs> when, when we talk about dislikes, 
we're talking like B B plus. Yeah. Right? yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. So, so take it with a grain of salt. But Severo's never really been one of my favorite characters in this book series. Yeah. Uh, I think he's fun. You know, mm-hmm. I, that that's not why I, I read literature, though, is for the fun. Um, mm-hmm. And he's a bit of comic relief and all those things. And, and he's well and fine and, and people love him and I like that people love him. But he just doesn't really do it for me all that much. Uh, and I think that's fine as well. But his sort of emotional just kind of devolving in a sense over the the loss uh you know this is the set of chapters where uh, he finds out about ulysses death uh-huh. um, this is a set of chapters where he laments uh, not being there for victra and his children and you know in the midst of that that heartache and really has um just kind of an emotional breakdown yeah and watching Darrow, his character progress um, and really be on the upward trajectory. Uh, and we've, we've kind of pointed this out before, but Darrow is really returning to form, something that we haven't seen since uh, the first uh, set of three books. Mm-hmm. And it's a breath of fresh air. It's wonderful to see him take charge and kind of get back into that, that Darrow that can slap somebody in a good way and kind of yeah. wake up like, you know, and, and explain things to people and bring them back around and, and watching their, their love of each other, watching, you know, the scene where Severo kind of just thinks of himself as only the goblin, right? He, it's kind of like Severo's now having a little bit of an identity crisis where Darrow was in the previous two books. There was that interesting, am I the Reaper or am I Darrow? And then you have that exact uh, kind of crisis of identity with Severo in this. Is am I, am I the Goblin or am I Severo? And it, it felt very Golem-ish to me, like Lord of the Rings Golem. Did you feel that too? That kind of like tug, like almost that push and pull? Interesting. No, I, I didn't get that out of I it. I felt, so Darrow's is more of a like this, I don't know. I feel like there's just kind of this, um, he understands who he is and who he needs to be, like the Reaper or what what face or mask he needs to wear, mm-hmm. the Darrow mask or the Reaper mask. But in this set of chapters, I felt like Severo didn't even know like what he actually needed to be, where he needed to like, what face he needed to put on, what mask he needed to put on. And he's just lost. He's completely lost. And it kind of felt like just almost golemish to me like there's just so much conf- like conflation or if that's even a word it um is. yeah <laughs> like, well yeah so like i say conflate but cl- yeah so much conflation with those two identities kind of just and i think that's because he got messed up in the head by the abomination the abomination like just did what he did to darrow in the box he lied to him he told him all these things that you know i got your family i'm gonna kill your family but you can all make it go away if you just say these words and and it's just like that's the manipulation that that character can push onto you. Um, that's like their weapon is their words, the abomination or Adrius, whoever you want to, I want to categorize that. And you feel, I guess the, what I felt like from Severo is the remnants of all that emotional manipulation these went under in this time, which, which needed Daryl to come forward and kind of call out like, yo, I, I, I like the goblin. He's helpful, but I love Severo. Yeah. It, and it feels like, again, I don't want to say the wrong thing or give anyone the wrong impression of what I think, but it, it almost feels correct that that kind of swap of positions and this isn't like a 
anti-Severo thing at all because I don't like that he's hurting. I don't like that mm-hmm. he's in this emotional distress. But watching Darrow go through that identity crisis, watching Darrow suffer, um, wasn't it, it wasn't right. You know, I mean, the the world was topsy turvy, so to speak. Yeah. And now, um, with Severo in that place, and Darrow kind of having this like salvific nature within the relationship. Uh, it just feels like things are proper again. And we talk about this a bit. We talk about it in terms of a trilogy progression where like, we, we, I think we mentioned Empire Strikes Back, yeah. <laughs> where you're really on the back foot and then you go into Return of the Jedi and Luke is no longer losing. He's no longer falling backwards and, and he has strength and right. And and I think it has that feel for it. It has that proper feel, even though this is not going to be a trilogy anymore. Um, yeah, I, I feel like just the, these interactions, how Darrow um, is once again just kind of like a pillar, like a, yeah. like you know, a cornerstone of of kind of his uh, his group of friends, his side of the rising, and he really anchors people. It felt like it was going back almost in time to chapter. I think it was twenty three of Morningstar, where they have you know, Darrow kind of has that come to Jesus moment Mm -hmm. uh, with Severo. It's like, stop being a terrorist. Like stop being this version of yourself that is ugly and awful. Like you can be beautiful and you can be more, you can live for more and like let go of being that terrorist warlord and step into being uh, Ares, like what your dad was, what these other people. And I feel like that was like, this is the much more mature version of that Mm -hmm. because I don't think the, the emotionality was a little less... And I think that just comes along with age. These, these, they're not young men anymore. They are mature men. And so even Darrow's language of trying to correct and kind of corral uh, Severo's behavior and just being, you know, being that recluse in the machine shop and not interacting with people and being actually actively working even Darrow's own words. He's like, you're working against us. Like you're, you're, we're like, we're like, it's always like we have a foot in our, tr- in the trap. And because you keep putting us there with all the things he's doing. Um, but it just like a more mature version of that. And, you do see a little bit of a pivot for Severo, kind of you know, giving some uh, forgiveness, like making that moon swill, as yeah. Cassius called it. <laughs> and then Cassius admitting it wasn't that bad. And then, oh, so funny. Cassius and Lyria's friendship is great. But this is the point where Lyria has a head injury. She had a concussion because of the, the skirmish, the fight that the that both Cassius and Severo got into. Oh, man. So, but, <laughs> so here we go. So Severo makes the moon swill as a, you know, a peace offering. And Cassius admits it's not half bad and then says to Darrow, even Lyria kind of liked it. And then this Darrow's like, dude, she has a head injury. Why are you making her, why are you like having her drink alcohol right now? <laughs> so funny. Just Cassius is like a goofball. Yeah, I, I hate to admit it, but that elbow to Lyria's face. Yeah, you thought it was funny. I was laughing You told me that. That's the, one of the one things you told me. I was horrified. I, was, I thought she was going to die or <laughs> well, something like that. I mean, yes, because it's Cassius and he's a monster compared to her. Yeah. But... Um, you thought that you saw the humor in it. I was, I was pretty sure she was going to be okay. <laughs> Maybe a, a broken nose or something, but yeah. just the way it happened. Um, and again, amidst like Darrow understanding what was going to be necessary to, uh, to cure the relationship, to bring Severo back and to reunite him with Cassius was to allow the fight. And, yeah. Interesting. And to watch, uh. Poor Lyria, who I like a lot, just yeah. get a massive elbow yeah. to her face. That was scary. I was scared. I think that um, I think it was supposed to be kind of funny though, because the way that Pierce, like, you know, he wrote it was like, 
she's out before she's out cold or she's snoring before she even hits the floor or something yeah. to that effect. Like yeah. the language was a little more humorous than I first, I think I first internalized it. So I think it was meant to be kind of silly, but not like, it's not scary like how I first took it. Yeah. So I think you probably read into it better than I did. Um, so anything else, any other takeaways, like any things that like you found that you just like really wanted to kind of talk about? I don't know. I want to hear yours first okay. and, then, and then we can elaborate if we need to. I want to do a little bit of a recap. I know that that actually, that was appropriate to talk about because Daryl had, you know, the 12 chapters mm-hmm. of the of the 19 that we're talking about today. So kind of, and and the, the trio of the brothers, you know, as we'll just call them shorthand, um, is, a, is a big thing to talk about that affects this part of the story. But there's a lot of things that happen. I want to recap them real fast because I think this is one of the heaviest set of chapters I've ever read from a, from a Red Rising novel. Like maybe... Um, Maybe Dark Age with like I mean, you know, maybe Dark Age setting that aside for a second and just talking about like maybe the other ones, but um, but here's a few things that happened in these 19 chapters. Quicksilver invents a new world. Mm-hmm. Bonkers, absolutely bonkers. Um, we learn about Quicksilver's family, and it's horrific. I thought it was on for me. It was on par with Ulysses. It was just really hard to read. One of the hardest things I've ever had to read in a Red Rising novel. Yeah. Um, you have the Imposter, which is Atlas. Putting, putting someone else's <laughs> hands or excuse me, like arms, arms to the elbow yeah. and eyes in their body and just like that happened. That's a thing that happened in this book. <laughs> and then um, Fa's a chill dude, like just a kind of a kicker. Like she's, she's just like, yo, what's up, man? I just want to have a unicorn ranch one day. And I, I was like, what? What's like this crazy? Pegasus or unicorn? I can't remember. Yeah. But I think it was Pegasus. Pegasus ranch or Pegasus. Yeah. So um, some of the Gorgons, like the close Gorgons are, are geniuses I, that I... Never thought that, and especially because Gorgons are often portrayed mostly as obsidians and greys, but obsidians primarily from what my understanding, I could be wrong on that. Um, it, I've had to deprogram a lot of what I thought about what obsidians could be because I was told for five and a half books that they could be one thing and they could be, you know, Sefi being and Ragnar kind of being more outliers than than most of them. But these people are like geniuses, like they're smarter than most golds that we've interacted with by a long shot. So I thought that was really interesting. And then you have the Rim Dominion effectively dead. Like this would take hundreds and hundreds of years to recoup from the devastation they suffered. Uh, not just like their forces, but like their, you know, Sungrave is just a gone. It's like, the that's the capital. It's, it's just gone. Um, and then we meet the Daughters of Ares at the end. Like that is a lot of heavy stuff in inside these like 19 chapters. And I think I'm glad we started with the more your take. I'm glad we started with the more <laughs> sentimental, kind of more cornerstone, as you put it, when talking about Daryl. I think that also was a cornerstone part of these chapters. But these are the other things that happened. Um, you have any comment on those before I move on? Uh, too many. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> we could we could go on for hours. Okay. So you go first, and then maybe we'll we'll pick okay. a third together or something. Gotcha. I want to talk about Atlas. For a long time, I thought of Atlas very differently. Than, than I didn't tell right now. Um, I thought of him as Apollonius, the the flip side of Apollonius. Apollonius is a character that is there, who is definitely a proven warrior who has incredible skill in certain areas, but ultimately is not built to be the big bad, and also not built to take take down the worlds, but there to be eccentric and exciting and funny and unique. I thought Atlas was that too, but in his own way with the poles, with the masks, with the torture, with like the, um, just like kind of being the embodiment of fear, 
but really just kind of being that secondary or tertiary character, even in this own book, he was primarily that for the most part. And then we get here and you realize you have my full attention. And it's not because of the imposter thing. The imposter thing is great. It's shocking and it's good reading in chapters 44 and 45. It's the plans, the layers and layers and layers of plans that he has to offer in this and how everything is working smoothly. So like, it's not, and that's not luck. Like that's like a meticulous planner with a drive for results, like beyond no other. And an intelligence that I think is now in my mind, surpasses Mustang, surpasses Adrius, surpasses, you know, you name it. Uh, I think this is the most intelligent person in the Red Rising saga now. Um, I just can't, I can't concede that. This is the, the level of planning, level of detail, everything going off of like a hitch. Destroying the Rim Armada is being the poster is one thing, incredible. But just like the orchestration with the Gorgons and Fa and having this plan go back, as he said, he started playing this 12 years ago. This whole I thing, this whole takeover that's just it's just so many levels deep that i my brain is still having like trouble wrapping all the way around it interesting um while i would not go so far as you to say that it puts him up there for me in the ranking of intelligence uh i i think it clarifies a lot um with him being a raw uh, because like mm. you said you know when you put him on par with apollonius i i certainly would have as well or a grimace, or, or something like that. Something, yeah. Right. And the Raws are much more, uh, more clever. Um, and the attribute that he gives himself, which I think is very apt, is just patient. Mm -hmm. I, I think it it takes certainly a level of intelligence and wisdom, you know, in order to be patient, in order to lay plans and and. Uh, watch them possibly fall apart, watch them get strained uh, and still work out. Or maybe he made some modifications to kind of fix some things that went awry. He did over because, time. because he did, he could have never uh, projected that Cassius and Lysander would have found Seraphina in the, in like the belt. He would never would have been able to project that. Yeah. So like different things went differently, but he was able to adjust. Yeah, for sure. I, and I just think at the end of the day, I, I mean, it's fine. If like, Months from now, after a couple of rereads, if you still put him as like super intelligent, I'm not gonna have a problem with that. But yeah. I think, I think the gravity of the situation and the shock and surprise of this, like out of left field thing, hits you so hard that he he kind of the, the pendulum swung pretty far. And by the time it rests, I think uh, he won't be number one in your book. But if Maybe. he is, that's fine. That's fine. Maybe I I just think I'm just so I guess the it's not correct to say impressed. I mean, I am on one level and the other level I'm like horrified. <laughs> <laughs> That's what I was going to say, horrified. Uh, uh, just because of, but just, it's just the details, like knowing, I don't know. I, I don't want to keep harping on it. I would probably just end up saying the same thing I just said a minute ago, but it's just so many levels. There's so many layers for like this to get to, you know, for A to B to C to D to, you know, so on and so forth for all this to go off and to, and to destroy Within moments, an entire, essentially, you know, part of this civilization is just gone, like truly gone. I mean, the Raw family, other than Diomedes, and I think it's uh, Thalia, the youngest daughter of the Raws, is like, oh. and Gaia, the only three Raws left, and the, you know, Diomedes, I mean, had that heartbreaking scene when they go to 
Sungrave and he's looking around and he finds two of his brothers, um, the younger brothers. And it's just like, ooh, like this set of chapters, maybe outside of what you brought forward, like you brought forward like that more connective piece with the brothers. Everything else that happened around that, I thought was just really hard to read at parts. Like Quicksilver, Atlas, um, Diomedes, like the loss and the devastation these, all these other characters are, um, you know, portraying is just like, it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, <laughs> and Atlas is kind of at the center of a lot of those things. And it's because of his plans that he's at the center of it. So um, impressed, I guess, because I don't have another word for it. Uh, it's it's fair to say impressed. I don't think yeah. that, I don't think that sets him up as admirable or anything like that. Just no. to, to say that he impressed us. I think that's yeah. fair. It's very shocking. <laughs> <laughs> that, that very these, shocking that these plans were like you said laid 12 years ago and brought to fruition all this time later yeah Un- unbelievable okay yeah it, it's this is telling because you and i don't know what to say and we always know what to say <laughs> when it come, we're talking about stuff we're like yeah i think there's two parts to this we don't know what's happening next right because we haven't read past what chapter 56 mm-hmm. so we don't know the effects of all this quite yet we know the immediate effects of essentially the rim is gone, like as we know it. But we know there's more coming and we're not sure. I mean, so I think that that's, it just shows like we're just hesitant to say maybe more, but also that it's so, again, impressive that it's like, for me, it's just, that's what I'm, that's what I'm trying to communicate to you. It's so impressive that I can't fully wrap my head around it. But just to kind of change gears though, Atlas does bring forward the, you know, he kind of does, say the title of the book a couple of times, which I thought was kind of cool. Like, you know, Lysander, like the bringer of light, kind of, you know, the flip of, of that. I thought that was interesting. You know, really his plans involve, you know, sidestepping Atalantia and, you know, putting like Lysander on the morning chair. Like another thing, I'm like, whoa, okay, here we go. This is nuts. Like this, is, I'm so excited to see how this plays out. Yeah. And, and like a word that's coming to mind for Atlas right now is like puppet master. Um, yeah, that's fair. Good, Which, I, I think uh, part of the shock, and this may have gone over easier with me, because I've always thought of like Adrius or Abominadrius or whatever, yeah. you know, you want to say, is that character. Um, this, he feels like he's- Who's doing the puppet master thing, who's, who's working in the shadows, right? Are they somehow linked? Do I have a competitor of, of mm. you know, puppet master oh, that now? Oh, be good. Like, like how many players, you know, are vying for all this kind of stuff? And Red God prediction. It's yeah. it's the Atlas versus Ad- Abominadrius throwdown. <laughs> yeah, it's just interesting to think about. It. It's kind of overwhelming in a way uh, to try to tie all those strings together when you don't know what's coming next. Yeah. Very interesting. Let's, let's move off this because I think we're just going to end up talking in circles. Uh, anything else that you want to comment on, like a big takeaway or something that of note to you? Like, did you want to talk about Quicksilver? Yes, I do. That's okay. what I was going to say. Let's talk about it. Go for it. So <laughs> I like thinking about things, spatial reasoning, and um, and like you said, we don't talk a whole lot about these. We try not to, but one of the questions you asked me was kind of speculating on sizes of asteroids. Yeah, I was like, hey, like, what do you, how, how big is this asteroid? Do you really think, like, how, like, how would this look? Well, I looked it up and, like, definitely asteroids can be small, but on the large side, they can be as large as um, essentially. 300 miles by, you know, somewhere in there, say 300 by 300 and and maybe a little flat or something like that. But um, if you look at 90,000 square miles, 
for our American listeners, because that's the easiest thing we can do. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I probably should have looked up a couple of European yeah, countries too, but um, if you, it's like Utah, Wyoming, Kansas. Uh, these are all states that mm. are approximately 90,000 square, uh, square miles. Yeah. And so it's conceivable that the asteroid he chose could be about the size of Kansas. Yeah. And I don't remember, because I'm sure that they listed how big it was. Like someone said in, in, in kilos how, how big it was in the book, but we didn't go back and check that. So, <laughs> sorry. But I, I was continuing after we got off the phone and, and I, I kept thinking about it, but imagine that this asteroid is, say, 300 miles by 250 miles, but then you have the the height dimension. Yeah. And let's say it's it's pretty flat. It, with those other dimensions, 30 miles high would be flat. Yeah. And so the question is, is with full-on, you know, ecospheres within this, a floor could have mountains, mountain ranges that go 3,000, 4,000 feet high yeah. inside of a, a, I'm doing air quotes, a floor of their asteroid. And you could have another Kansas on top of it with mountain ranges and another Kansas, right? And you could yeah. have... You could essentially Isn't have... Isn't Kansas just like historically like or like notably really flat too? Kansas is very yeah. flat. So that's why I'm giving the mountain ranges <laughs> mountain now. Ranges, I'm yeah. helping you, Kansas. All right, let's... We're going to throw some mountain sure. ranges in Kansas Let's do right Wyoming now. then, yeah. okay? <laughs> but like if, if you start stacking these Wyomings over and over, or Oregon could be another good hey one, right? Suddenly you have very uh, diverse kind of ecosystems uh, and these various floors that he can give these people as, and when he talks about it in this, this terms of like the new world, um, where, where they're going to grow up completely absent, um, the society. I mean, that's a pretty good sized world. If you, if you can stack, I don't know, let's say 20 organs or, or 20 yeah. Idaho's or whatever you want, you know, yeah. one of those mid-sized states. I just, it took me like, that's what, like that one of the things we did talk about was I called you and said, hey, about this Quicksilver New World thing, like how <laughs> big is, like how big you think this we're talking here? Because I would just, for whatever reason, anytime, I guess in movies or like any, like you always see an asteroid heading towards Earth and it's always like it hits Earth like and it's Armageddon like Armageddon with something. It's with never, Tyler. <laughs> yeah, exactly like that. No, but like anytime I've seen stuff, it's always typically an asteroid hits Earth, it burns in the atmosphere and it's, you know, it's usually comes in the size of like, Maybe something as small as a basketball, but it's coming in so fast and hot that it could like go, you know, multiple layers deep in the earth or it's something like big, but it's like, when I say big, it may be the size of an ATV or something like that. I don't know. I never think of them as huge, giant, crazy orbs. I guess I don't know why my dis I disconnect from that. So I had to call you and ask, like, how reasonable is it to build a world inside of an asteroid? I just didn't get that. I guess I always thought of them as way smaller. Yeah. And the answer is, it's a very small world, but... <laughs> Yeah, but you could fit conceivably a couple hundred million people inside of that yeah. asteroid. That's uh, crazy the way he built it out. And it, I think when the book talks about the size of, say, the Lightbringer, <laughs> yeah, uh, the amount of metal in just that one ship being so many kilometers long, and you talk about the expectation on Quicksilver that he would have supplied the metal. Or, or just the fleet itself necessary to fight a war, uh, like an entire armada. Yeah. Um, that, yeah, if you hollowed out, because I think that when I think of the asteroid, I don't think it's like like Disneyland facade kind of like foam painted yeah, foam. Yeah. I, I think it's an actual asteroid that he yeah. 
mine that he carved out and and built trusses it win, you know, and, and mm-hmm. he kind of framed out with all this metal and then terraformed the inside. Yeah. Uh, and then, yeah, built these kind of like ecospheres. So, um, I, a couple hundred million people to kind of start, like, that's a lot of Adams and Eves yeah. <laughs> to start the new world. So, yeah, that, that brings up a good question. Like, size of asteroids aside, <laughs> yeah. what do you think about the moral implications of this? Um, it's interesting because I was thinking about Quicksilver and I, I've come to this conclusion over time that I think I understand him at a very, very deep level. And Darrow had this, this kind of conclusion as well. And he gets quite upset with Quick, but he understands him at the same time and kind of backs everybody else off. It's like, trust me, he's, you know, and he's not changing his mind. This is happening. Yeah. Let's just take our suits and, and go. Yeah, new suits are cool. Peace out. And I think I completely understand Quicksilver. I think he's an admirable character. I, I mean, he has this beautiful vision. Um, and I think Darrow's quote when he realizes, you know, exactly where Quick is and, and how he's not going to move is, I think he says like, oh, it turns out you're like not very pragmatic. Right, I forget the exact quote, but he tells him something like, essentially, you're a dreamer after all. Uh, uh, yeah. You know, not just analytical. But Quicksilver has started the rising <laughs> yeah, and funded it. And if you think about the amount of money that it would have taken, probably hundreds of billions of dollars that he's sunk into Darrow, um, into Fitchner, into, Fitchner mm-hmm. into the rising in general at this scale that we're talking about. So he's been pretty committed. <laughs> yeah. I, I think he's a fantastic character. I think he wants the best for society. And then, even though I understand him, I don't agree with the decision. I think that, uh, you know, when he talks about this new world getting started, he, he I like the, the thought. I, I like this idea that I can keep people away from the society, that I can completely remove them from the evils of this caste system. Mm-hmm. But he even admits, like, that in a kind of positive way that, that then they're going to have the freedom to do what they want. They can, they can rip themselves to shreds. They can build a great, better society, but it's going to be on them. It's going to be completely up to them. And there's a part of me in that realm of just the absolute freedoms that likes the opportunity that he's giving them. But I think at the end of the day, it is pretty pie in the sky. I, I think it is also abandoning the reality. Yeah. And that, that's the part that bothers me. It makes me think that he's making the wrong choice personally. That's exactly how I feel, like pie in the sky. It's kind of like, it's just like, it's so hyper idealistic. Yeah. Of, and it's, it's putting almost a lot of pressure on yourself and also these other people to do what you think they can do. And, but I think, it, I think it's, the society is evil, but it's also like in its own way, pretty practical that people put people in tears. We do that all the time. Like we have, you know, people use terms and I don't like using these terms, but I'm going to do it for the sake of right now. It's like, you know, lower class, middle class, you know, upper class, top 1%. You know, we classify people by their socioeconomic status. We do that. We don't have this like hard line caste system in like, uh, you know, the modern world or most modern worlds. But it, it just kind of happens very naturally. I mean, ha- like look at junior high school. <laughs> like what, mm-hmm. what is that? If, if not all clicks and tears. Um, it's just that I, so I think that it happens in one way or another. 
so I think it's like, I think it's putting a lot of pressure on yourself to hope that that turns out the way it does. But the society is, I think, inherently evil. And if you see it as the truest evil, which I think Clicksor does as by what he tells us with the backstory of his former family, he just sees it as irrecoverably evil, then that, that logic makes sense. Yeah. I, the thing about his conclusion, though, is if you think of these kids that he's raising in, in the asteroid, um, they are like Adams and Eves. And I think the thing about human nature is that even if you pulled them out of this, um, history repeats itself, but, but not for the sake of history. It, it repeats itself because of the sake of human nature. Yeah. So I don't think that when he gives them this, this freedom to do what they like, including rip themselves apart, um, that freedom will <laughs> essentially evolve into hierarchies, evolve into mm -hmm. uh, discrimination, will evolve into all the things that human nature causes. Yeah, like Lord of the Flies, like uh, another like, call out yeah, for that. I yeah, think that's a, I think that's a great reference. And I, I was thinking that if you gave me an opportunity to wipe society of the Hitlers and, and the Pol Pots and the Maos and Stalins and, mm -hmm. and all these great evils that cost hundreds of millions of lives, yeah. or at least a hundred million lives. Um, would I do it? Would I erase that from society? And I think the answer is no. Um, because ultimately someone else takes their place or because why? Because ultimately somebody will take their place. Somebody else would have filled that vacuum uh -huh. because of my belief in human nature. But because of it happening, I think there is a, a bit of like social evolution that goes on. And because of history, we are given an opportunity to learn. So like these kids that he has, will they know the evils of strict discrimination and hierarchies? Will they know that building a society uh, results in the evils that it does? The answer is no, they won't know that. But by knowing that and living through it, like the rising, I think you at least have a chance of, of going a different direction. Hmm. This is very interesting. And I'm sure we could riff on this a lot longer, but then we wouldn't really be talking about red rising anymore. We'd be talking about history and uh, moral implications of what happens in history and how we should treat it going in the future, which is fascinating, but not the purpose of the podcast, sadly. Um, <laughs> no, no, no. As, no. as Monty Python would say, this is a happy occasion. <laughs> <laughs> um, let's go and take a break. We'll come back. And we're going to do our awards. All right. Sacrifice, obedience, prosperity. These are the words we must always remember. These are the tenets to which every color, be they low or high, conform. Sacrifice, obedience, prosperity. Sacrifice, obedience, prosperity. Sacrifice, obedience, prosperity. Jeremy, we're back. It's time for awards. We have been doing this every week. We've been offering our awards for the parts or the chapters we've been reading. And here they are. Here's the categories we're addressing. Favorite chapter of the set of chapters we read. Favorite quote. Favorite character. Worst character. And <laughs> which is fun. You, you told me to put that one in, by the way. That was your call. It's a great, it's yeah. a great one. And then uh, the most unexpected thing that happened in this set of chapters. So kick us off. What was your favorite chapter 
All of, right. of 37 through 56. Uh, so this is like rehashing. This is why I was a little tentative before to go fully into this because I knew we were going to talk about it again. So we need to like a couple new angles because cool. my favorite chapter was 45, which is Lysander Allfather. Really? Yeah. I'm surprised by that. Okay. I think that it, it's so dense and, and meaty. Yeah. Finding out about, you know, the reveal that... The imposter. The imposter, yeah. you know. And the way he did it with, like you said, carving himself. I, the, his face. Um, he had a mask on, but he put the new eyes in and put the arms on. So is, is this the same... I should have looked it up, um, but the same device that uh, Cassius and Lysander use. Well, Ly- Lysander didn't oh. have to use it because they didn't know his face, but Cassius' oh, face would have been called? recognized. Yeah, we're talking iron gold. Yeah, that's the thing. He Do we think that's the same thing probably. that Atlas probably used to do yeah. Helios? Yeah. Okay. Probably just put that mask on and made himself look different. Like that one that attaches, like it surgically attaches to you, but you put it on mm-hmm. it, it's automated. Super crazy. But yeah, I'm guessing it's something similar. But- had the carver replace his arms and eyes. Yeah. Oh, and it's and man. the carver says it's not as bad as last time or something to that effect. Like it's been done before, like where Atlas has done this before. That was wild. Yeah. And you know, I guess one angle that we didn't talk about before uh is the death of Dido. Yeah. Like, how did that affect you? Barely. I liked Dido though. Mm-hmm. Um it just kind of like it felt it, and when I say barely, it just felt like it was coming. And I actually did think, I think I had some predictions written down a long time ago. And I felt like she was going to play a much bigger part in Lightbringer. Um, but that was like more fresh after reading Dark Age, like for the first time a couple of years, like several years ago. But I kind of felt like she was going to be built up to be a little bit bigger than she was. But the more that I heard Pierce talking about it, even going back to Comic-Con a year ago, the more I started thinking some of the things I had about um, Lightbringer in my head were not going to happen. And it was going to be more Darrow's story like he kept preaching. And it, in fact, he was definitely right. Yeah, I think from when we first meet Diomedes, my assumption was that he was going to be a, a huge player yeah. in the world. I knew Dido would play some role. Um, I, I think I felt along the same lines with you. Uh, I wasn't that startled. I mean, I wasn't happy or anything like that. I liked Dido as a character, yeah. but... But it wasn't startling. It felt like something that that needed to happen um, yeah. to progress the story and, and move it where it needed to go. But as far as the Raws, as far as the Rim is concerned, I never pegged Atlas up there with Diomedes as a big player. And, yeah. and he essentially passed him up <laughs> in a single chapter yeah. uh, of, I don't know if importance is the right word, but you know what I'm trying to say. Yeah. So it... it, it crazy chapter it really just turned everything on its head i think it was like there's this shock value to it where you're just like oh my gosh i cannot believe this is happening and it's and it and from what we know about red rising we've been (sighs) there's not a lot of improbable thing even though it's sci-fi and the limits are far uh greater than the limits we have on earth it's still everything feels really pierce puts it in practical like a, a practical level like even in his own world and this didn't feel that practical, but at <laughs> yeah. the same time it did because of its Atlas. So it's like, but why hasn't someone done this before? Why hasn't someone just, you know, chopped their arms off and put some new eyes in and done this before? It's like, cause even then it, that's still pretty crazy, like pretty, 
pretty freaking crazy. Yeah. So, uh, and then for all these other orchestrational pieces to happen, even like the idea of the God glove, like Helios's God glove mm -hmm. and having to go in that like almost like triangle kind of shroud, like that is a part of this too. Like the way that that ship worked and having this kind of, because a core ship doesn't have that that triangle shroud, right? They they don't they just do all this out in the open because they're kind of because of their hubris mostly. They don't have to do this because I think the core is just more kind of flamboyant with their with their customs. And so, uh, but you know, this is a more a private kind of society. So they go into a a covering and make this this trade of the god glove happen. But even that's a part of this. So it's like interesting that um, it wouldn't this wouldn't work in the core, like this kind of takeover, because they have to have that one device, that one agent essentially should go into um, and be in that shroud. Yeah. The whole thing just blew my mind. Yeah. I mean, everything from, I mean, Volsum Fall. Yeah, it's all crazy, dude. Yeah. It's crazy. Um, it let's get to, let's not yeah, jump Yeah, go ahead. to yours, go to yours. Uh, favorite chapter, was it Lysander chapter as well? <laughs> really? So we, this is the third podcast in a row. We're oh just my like, goodness. we're just beating the Lysander drum. Uh, chapter 49 so it's after this is kind of all the dust settles from this. Uh, it's when um, Atlas and Lysander dress up as obsidians and they go down into uh, onto Io and they kind of meet the Gorgons for the first time. And Atlas is like homies, like super tight homies with all these guys. And it's when you have, they, they sit around this like kind of, I, I picture it like as almost like a long dinner table and they're having really deep, unique conversations and Lysander's asking questions of these Gorgons, like, you know, tell me about the Volk, tell me about the Askamani, like what makes them different from each other? And like, they're, you know, the way they talk is super intelligent and it's just really shocking. I was just like, everything I thought about these bad guys, these villains is so different than what I realized. Like they're so much more nuance there's so much more depth there so much more intelligence there intellect um it's more nasty and they're almost in mourning over it like they're talking about the warriors they had to take down like he was a great warrior and i really hated to do it but it's just it's what this it's what the society needs right now and it just i feel deep sorrow for him having to be here and me having to take him out but this is what's necessary and this is what's needed like that just all that stuff it was like a mix of sadness and mind being blown, like back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. It's that whole chapter. I think we often, <laughs> you know, lower our standards for the enemy. We think of them like stormtroopers. Yes, it's that's what that's what we're programmed to do because of because of stories like that. Yeah, because of Star Wars and other stories, they're just like they're just nothing. Yeah, they're mindless meat bags, mm -hmm. kind of in the way of your protagonist and. I think that's one thing that, that Pierce does really well. He's done it with Adrius. Um, uh, he's, he's done it with, you know, now Atlas. Uh, mm -hmm. You can just go on. But even down to the minutia of the Gorgons, I think it's important to realize, like, one of the, you know, overarching narratives with the color hierarchy that, that Pierce tries to bring in is that, I mean, we, we want to be careful not to assume that obsidians and grays are stupid <laughs> yeah yeah and i'm not trying to say that I'm no i know like, you're not I, in general though we just we as a whole collective of like fans and readers just need to make sure we don't do that make that and, natural because it's assumption. so it's so simple to look at them and not the ones on your side because it's easy to say ephraim oh he's very or holiday or holiday oh, oh, yeah. awesome and smart exactly. yeah but all the rest of them all those other obsidians and grays 
they're dumb stormtroopers. Like yeah. we have to be careful not to do that. And I think Pierce does a good job of acknowledging that and reminding us that that these are actual people. Yeah. That they're humans. Um and they have minds, they have preferences, they have they mourn. Mm-hmm. Um and they're essentially doing a job at the end of the day. Yeah. And and that's what we got that piece of of kind of surprising dialogue between them. Yeah. Is uh, that it's more like a Tom Clancy novel <laughs> than yeah. your typical fantasy novel where they're they're Orakai or something yeah. like that. Mm-hmm. So I thought that was just an awesome bonkers chapter that made me sad and on the edge of my seat the entire time. Um, let's go to favorite quote. What do you got for me? So my favorite quote comes out of chapter 48, a Darrow chapter called The Tickler. And we talked about this a little bit. The setup for this is where Cassius and uh, Severo just really need to hash it out like brothers. And Darrow believes the, the best course of action is just to let them fight. They do so. Uh, Severo is really kind of confused about why Cassius is being brought back into the inner circle. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of, of heartbreak over what occurred, uh, the past, especially with, you know, Fitchner and and things like that. And yet here we go again with Darrow forgiving people and Darrow loving on people and bringing Mm -hmm. them back into the fold. And, and, and Severo is very resentful of that. And, but Darrow just really sets him straight and, and talks about, I, I mean, it, it'll be self-evident, but it's like, this is not, you're not the only one who has some sort of claim mm-hmm. on this, on this, uh, the victim of, of this world. Um, so here we go. Darrow says, I beat his brother to death with my bare hands. Cassie's his twin. I cut his older brother in half. Our friends killed his da, and on and on and on. I'm shouting now, but damn it, he needs perspective. And despite all of that effing murder, Severo, all that murder, Cassius is here with us right now, fighting for our future, fighting for you and for your family back on Mars. Despite the horrors of the camps where that little red in the med bay saw her entire family butchered, Lyria is here with us right now. And despite my betrayal of the sons on the rim all those years ago, where thousands were executed because I turned my back on them, Are is here now. And they are all fighting for your kids, for mine. Whew. That's an indictment right there. Uh, super good quote. Uh, and again, kind of reminiscent of that I think again, chapter 23-ish in Morningstar, but it's like calling him back and just kind of like, come back, come back to me, bro. Like wake up out of this, this trance you're in that's just not good for you and like accept the realities and this is all messed up, but mm-hmm. we can all be messed up together. <laughs> like that's what he's saying. And you just got to put that aside. Like you have to, otherwise like this is, because I mean, like you said, Cassius is doing this not just for you, not just for him, it's for your family back home. Yeah, the heartbreak that Severo has been feeling, the the victimhood that he has bought into, um, that puts him in this emotional 
state is very similar to what we talked about for our iron gold chapters with Lyria. And he references that here. It's this idea that this woman has every grievance under the sun mm-hmm. for how she was raised, for the lineage of her people, for the list goes on and on. And yet you don't see her whining or complaining or giving in or just throwing a pity party. Yeah. Like she's here fighting for everything tooth and nail. Yeah. And the same is true of Cassius. I, we, we spoke of Cassius specifically because we like him so much. And of all the people, um, golds do in fact have the most to lose. Yeah. And he being a Bologna um, of a high station had even of the golds, even of the peerless, more to lose than a lot of others. And he really has given up everything. He has brought himself down very, very many pegs. <laughs> yeah. And he has made mistakes and he has learned from them and he has eaten lots of humble pie. And he is here fighting um, again for several, for his family, for the society, for. No, for the Republic. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> for the Republic, for all, for all of like people, society, sorry. Yeah. Like not this society, is a real, this is a real uh, term. Society, yeah. Not yeah. capital S. Yeah. <laughs> a lowercase S. Um, <laughs> nice. And it, yeah. And several is blind to it because of the hurt, because of the pain that he's going through. And it really is Darrow just shaking. I'm trying to wake him up and say, don't you realize like we're all in this the same place. Yeah. Everyone's hurting. Yeah. Uh, man, that's a really good one. And actually kind of wish I picked it, uh, but here we go. Uh, and I actually thought it highlighted and it was in, it was in contention, but I went something with something different, but something a little similar. Uh, this is in chapter 52. I have to read both parts. This is a back and forth. This is a Cassius quote that I'm highlighting, but it needs the setup from Darrow in order for this to work. So there's a little back and forth here. This is starting with Darrow. They're on Sungrave and we see Darrow and Severo with Diomedes as a prisoner now. And this is what's happening. So Cassius and, and Diomedes are about to walk up. I expect him to babble about the armor. Instead, Cassius's voice is like that of a man attending a funeral. These poor people. I've never seen anything like this. Darrow's response. You will again if Adelania makes it to Mars, I reply. You brought Diomedes. Yes. Can't be just you and Severo making the plan every time. I'm more than a pretty face and an excellent pilot. The raw need to see this, Darrow. He deserves to see this. I know that he's your enemy, but I was once too. Was I so wrong to bring him? To not want him to be tortured? I know I've missed the war, but maybe that's a good thing. You and Severo are stuck in a knife fight you can't look up from. Darrow. Maybe I offer him. But you should have asked Cassius. Oh, like several asked to torture him? That's the end of the quote. Um, <laughs> just kind of, it ends with a jab. And that's Cassius. Like, it's like, it can be this thing where it's these poor people, like true. Like he said, it, it sounded like he was attending a funeral. Like he cannot believe and fathom the, the devastation on Sungrave. And he brings uh, Diomedes. He's like, he brings me, he, he deserves this. He saved my life. He doesn't say that, but you know, he saved my life and he's an honorable man. And I want to honor, I want to return that. And he's right. Like, uh, it can't just be Severo and, 
in a way, like I know that their stations are higher in terms of like Imperata and Arch Imperata, but like Cassie's is a part of this kind of crazy band and he can, I feel like he has the right to kind of, kind of shoot a shot here. Yeah. I think Cassius has, has every right in the world. I, uh, I love his character. Yeah. Cassius like, is a goat in his own way. <laughs> he's, he's my favorite character type there on the whole series. Like, yeah. it, and it didn't start that way. It's just, it's a thing that's grown the last couple of years. Like, and I have such appreciation for him. Like you said, just like, he's truly an outsider to everyone. This is the only place in the world that he's accepted with Darrow and Severo and Lyria and Ore and like, these people. Like he's not accepted anywhere else. Like he killed Ares. So he's like the rising and the Republic doesn't really want him. Like, uh, and then he, the society doesn't want him because of he traded and killed Octavia and set all this into motion. So he's really just kind of, he's the only character that's really on an island. Yeah. And yet he chooses time and time again, he does choose the selfless like act over and over and over again. And like him bringing Diomedes, that's not for him. That's because he, Diomedes, it's his right. This is his, this is his, not, I, I'm using the word country. I guess that's right in our world, but it's like, this is his country. This is his land. This is his home. He deserves to see what happens. Yeah, I want to throw in my next award. Because this is favorite character? Yes, because Cassius is going to take home the award for favorite character from me. So it's it's fitting that we kind of just tie this in and continue talking. Hey, I'm going to join you though. I, I had Are it, you I, really? I had it written down. Yeah, okay, yeah, good. I had it written down. I like it. Uh, and then the other scene that I, I guess you yeah, have to back up a little bit, but when they're trying to contact uh, the daughters and... They run into the obsidians and they're what for all intents and purposes, like hog tying people, <laughs> like they're, they're yeah. taking them captives. They're treating them. Uh, and Darrow is very much kind of stay on target, stay on target. And, <laughs> nice. and Cassius refuses and completely goes against everybody. You know, Severo is, is kind of like, I'm definitely not going to going to go anywhere. Like we have to get this job done. We're here for a sole purpose. We're trying to save family and, and our world. And Cassius just cannot help himself. Uh, he sees people suffering and it, it kind of takes me back to, uh, the opening scene with Cassius and Lysander in, uh, iron gold uh -huh. in a, in a very similar way that was flip flopped where, Lysander was the one saving him and for the mostly the wrong reason. Yeah. But it's, it's a very comparable scene, but instead you have Cassius and doing it for just a completely uh, selfless reason because, yeah. because it's the right thing to do. He will sacrifice everything because a person's in need of help. Like I is nobody is more honorable uh, yeah. in, in this sense than, than Cassius. I, we, we talk about it a bit. The Raws are always getting all the love for, for honor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, Atlas, yeah, tell me he's honorable. <laughs> but Cassius is. <laughs> he really is. Um, I want to throw another log on our Cassius bonfire here and let Do it keep it. burning. Um, I want to go up and pull up another quote to kind of double down on my Cassius being my favorite character in this part, this section of chapters. And it's because... There's not a lot of bright spots in this set of chapters, right? Like we talked about like the heaviness of it all. But so I looked for like 
the what I looked to and why I made this decision for Cassius was because I looked for the, that one bright spot. And I feel like he is that in this series of chapters. This is chapter 54. This is what Darrow says uh, kind of in, in regard to Cassius. I head into the hold of the transport, expecting the worst. The dim interior is filled with cages. They cough behind filthy nanoplastic barriers, huddled together in fear, droopy and sedate from the shabbiness of the cages and the oxygen filters. Several of the pinks have broken their legs and arms in the landing. They cry in the arms of green architects. I feel sick at the sight until I realize they are not crying in horror. They are crying in relief. I didn't help Cassius to save them. I helped Cassius because I didn't want him to die. And he would have died for strangers. A font of respect and love for the man grows in me. Several called him shallow. He is not, not by a long shot. I want to make a call out um, in regards to this quote and then also in regards to Cassius. Like we, we've talked about this a lot in the last episode about the idea of a shepherd. You know, Lysander is where are all the shepherds gone in chapter 17. I think this is what Cassius is. Cassius is that shepherd. Um, and a shepherd can be a gold or a red or a brown or whatever. But it's like what a shepherd is to me is someone that looks after a flock. And that's what he does. He just does it time and time and time again. He always is showing who he is. And he's a character that is so incredibly selfless. And he like really exemplifies that idea of a shepherd. Yeah, Cassius is um, it's just really shooting up there. <laughs> so freaking good, dude. Yeah. I don't get the Cassius haters. I just don't get it. Uh, how many are there? I, I don't. There's a few, but do I, just, the I don't think nearly as much as I you do. I just don't get it. Like, I mean, like, what's your argument? <laughs> like I'm just like seriously he killed Fitchner and you just can't forgive yeah, him. Yeah, or or he's just maybe he's just like you don't like the fact that he like I mean if he wasn't good enough for Mustang he's not good enough for you. I don't know. Like what's I just don't know your argument. Yeah, but I I think especially second series Cassius um, just keeps climbing and mm -hmm. doesn't seem to be stopping for me. Yeah, in my book. Yeah, these are which makes me all the more afraid. <laughs> <laughs> no, these are fantastic, and I, I like the term shepherd. I, I like it. I think it's apt for Cassius. I think that he displays a lot of selfless attributes that that would make that a fitting term for him. Mm -hmm. I'm digging it. Yeah, I just, it's interesting how Lysander sees gold as shepherds exclusively. And I know, I know Cassius is a gold, but he's not acting within that gold structure to mm -hmm. do what he's doing. It couldn't be anyone doing this. It just helps that he's a gold because he's so fast and strong. <laughs> but... In, in the idea of saving people, but it doesn't, he's modeling something, I think, uh, that anyone could do or anyone could take part in is to to do the more selfless thing. This is why he has a place in the dream of EO. Yeah, exactly. Worst character so far, Jeremy, who you got? Who's the worst character from this part of these chapters? I don't know if this is going to upset you or if you're going to agree. Volsong Fa. What? No, I actually had him as the contention for one of my favorite oh, characters. No, it's terrible. I thought he was so interesting. I was like, it was him or Cassius were my, were I thought favorite characters. Oh no, it's complete opposite for me. I'm glad we completely disagree. It makes I, it more interesting. I thought he was just so shockingly interesting that I thought, I was like, wow, this is so different than what I thought he'd be like. It was, I was, yeah. I just wasn't happy about that. I, you wanted him to be the big bad, like completely then. It doesn't mean that he has to be unintelligent or it'd be... Like he's just a singular entity. Like he's just like a warmonger and that's it. Yeah, I don't... I think he could have had complexity. I think he could have had um, some contrast between these other elements of, of his life. But 
uh, you have a character like Genghis Khan. He's sipping cognac in a kimono in this book, dude. That, that's my point. It's, it's amazing. It's if you so go funny. back to like one of the great war, like Genghis Khan, I think is a fantastic uh, kind of comparison mm-hmm. for him or would have been prior to this chapter. <laughs> uh, Genghis Khan is obviously incredibly intelligent, mm-hmm. is a brilliant tactician, uh, but also a, a ruthless what, warlord. Yeah. And... For it to all be fake, I think is the part that bothers me. I mean, mm. obviously he's a he's a like very highly regarded and, and costly obsidian stud. Um, but the whole like modulator yeah, voice, voice thing modulator that comes off, and then suddenly like slipping on the velvet smoking jacket <laughs> and shipping cognac and like. <laughs> I, I don't know. <laughs> it was just hard for you to to get like wrap your arms around. Yeah, I it was, and it made me dislike dislike him. I, I think it's because he's a phony. I, I don't like phonies, and okay. so he's not a good character in my book. Hey, he's, you're he, a phony. He's worse than he was. At least he was like a cool warlord on the wrong side, and now he is just being puppeted around as a phony with a fake voice and everything <laughs> and I hate him and he is the worst character of this chat these sets of chapters so there <laughs> I, I, for all the things you hate I actually thought that was really interesting to me I was like that's just really weird it's just like it's so it's so weird he's an aristocrat yeah like, exactly he's an aristocrat no screw it's that guy it's so interesting to me <laughs> I really liked it um okay oh I hate to do this Several. Wow. Whoa. I just, I can't, I'm just having a hard, hard hang with this guy. So I want to, I want to say this. Um, according to my Kindle, this is almost exactly two thirds the way through the book. It's like, so where we're, where we stopped at, we're stopping at chapter, what we're covering right now in this podcast is up to chapter 57. So this is two thirds the way through the book. This guy has been a pain for two thirds of the book. And if you go back to dark age, he was kind of a pain then. If you go back to Iron Gold, it's kind of a pain then. <laughs> We're on a bad run um, for this guy. And I know that like he brings forward a lot of the lore that we love about, um, you know, and the iconography that we love about the the series. And so, it, like, and a lot of people easily, I mean, I remember I actually just did a giveaway on Instagram and I just like put like, you know, put your, who's your favorite character. And then like, Severo was just like one of the overwhelming favorites. Like people love him for that. But if you like really, if you step outside of some of those, if you look at it as just like second series, like Iron Gold forward, he's just not what he was in those books, in those first three books. He's very different. And and he has his reasons. So I don't, and I don't blame him for those reasons. But in this book specifically, um, also I think I would act a lot like him in both Iron Gold and Dark Age, by the way. I really do. Because mm. my family would be, such a priority my kids would be such a priority that i wouldn't be able to think about anything else but in this sense um and even with the new information that he has about ulysses which is like super tragic and heartbreaking but still like just being so unavailable and working kind of against like what darrow says kind of you like you're kind of working against us here and you're not like except like your quote about like snap out of it dude like look at what cassius is going through look at what ra is going through look at what Lyria is going through look what i'm going through like we're all dealing with like some pretty irrecoverable stuff, but we're still doing it and you're not. 
like that. And so like you have that chapter. What chapter was that from? Your quote or your um that part that you liked a lot? Like 48? 48, yeah. 48. Okay, so here we are. We're all the way, we're down in like towards the end of this set of chapters. I think this is chapter 55. So that whole scene we just talked about with Cassius going to save those potential obsidian slaves and freeing them, where Darrow actually calls for Severo to intervene and help. He goes, hey, you're closer. Like, go help and I'll be there in a second. And the response that Severo gives to Darrow is this. You're telling me to abandon our only contact to Athena alone here with the obsidians about. Nah. Bologna wants to spend his life for Moonies? Let him. I'm here for my kids. Maybe think about yours for once. And I was just like, that burn was epic. And the next sentence is, Severo has never wounded me more than he does with those words. Like, this is after that come to Jesus moment that mm-hmm. he has. This is after the the peace offering of the of the moon swill. Like, this is still, he's still acting in this like pretty negative way. I don't know how else to put it. Just like kind of not, he's not, he is not that old several. Like he's just not, he's not the one at the Institute. He's not the one in Golden Sun that's fun and, and nasty and has all the good one-liners. He's not that guy anymore. Like, and I have a hint or feeling from people like our buddy Jason, the This Dad Reads podcast. I have a feeling that from what he's told me, a non-spoiler thing that maybe Severo does come around. So I have a, kind of an inkling that that's going to happen. But it's not here and now. And he's just been kind of a rough hang. And I'm just really not, I really haven't enjoyed Severo in this book. And I think he was the worst character in these this set of chapters. It's interesting. We generally have a lot of the same conclusions. Um, and some overlap, not always, but this one, we have a ton of overlap uh, but opposite conclusions like throughout, mm-hmm. which I like. I like that because I, I talked about, you know, one of my big takeaways is how much I enjoy the interactions, the arc of the brotherhood. Mm-hmm. And that includes several being a bad hang. I think in isolation, I can agree with you uh, to some degree that he's a bad hang, yeah. <laughs> but it, it works for me because of the arc, because of how it allows Darrow to interact with him. It allows Cassius to be highlighted uh, and shown as special mm-hmm. um, without, you know, a virtuous Severo kind of stealing a spotlight or something. Um, but I can see it and I'm, I'm sympathetic to that view. It works in terms of story. Yeah. I get what you're saying, but it doesn't take away the fact that he is... Th- Severo has never wounded me more than he does with those words. That's a statement from Darrow as mm-hmm. a narrator. That's a huge statement from Darrow as a narrator. They've been through a lot together. And there's been a lot of things that two brothers have said to each other that have been hurtful. But that, this is the crowning jewel, according to Darrow, that he's so flagrantly not thinking about his kids, like whether it's Severo's kids or Darrow's own kid. That he's just like, yeah, you just don't even care, man. Like you're just saying, like, who who are you, man? You're not even thinking about your your wife, your kids. Like you're just a your joke. Like that's what it, that's the tone, that's the tenor that I get from Severo and that. Like this is a joke. Like you're a joke in this moment. Like for thinking this is a good idea to go save these other people when I'm over here thinking about my kids and your kid. I don't know. That's that's like an epic, epic thing to say. It like, is hurtfully epic. Yeah. And do you disagree with Severo? Yeah. Do you? Yeah. Okay. 
Because we've talked about it before. How I I just made a like big statement about how Cassius is what Cassius is doing. Like, yeah, and I think that Cassius is right. You how can you how can no, you no no I'm I'm not saying yeah. do you disagree with Severo in in okay. Um, I'm saying in the circumstance because I can't no, detach it from the circumstance. No, I understand. Are you, because we've commented about how Darrow has essentially left his family to be the hammer. Yeah. Right. And to wage war. And he hasn't been there for PAX. He's, uh, he hasn't been there for Virginia. He's out doing the greater good for society. And he has kind of left them high and dry, high and dry. Yeah. And I think when people take the most offense, when people are hit with the greatest hurt is because of the truth in the statement. Yeah. To some, at least to some degree. And Darrow's said some pretty harsh things about himself inside of his own narrative um, about his being a father and husband. That's the design of the character. He knows that. Mm -hmm. The reader knows that. Pierce knows that. Everyone knows that. It is what the character lives and breathes for on the page is to be the hammer, to go in front of everyone else. Literally, like he go, he, he's the first one there to strike and dig the roots. And so everyone else can come after him, clean up the wreckage and try to build it to be more beautiful. Yeah. That's what the character's design is to be. And so, and it's almost like, I feel like, <laughs> I feel like even the in-world characters should understand that at this point. I'm putting a lot of that onto Severo right now. Like, so that's why we're disagreeing, Mickey, yeah. Severo and I. <laughs> um, but like, <laughs> but I feel like, it's like, you don't understand who this guy is, like still, like, I mean, and furthermore, Mustang was the one that didn't let them come home. She was like, you got to go do this, man. Like, no, it's true. Like you got it. And Lightbringer, she's like, no, don't come home. I want you to come so bad, but don't because you have your calling in this moment right now is to go and get this, these ships and bring them back like through Athena. I, the battle with Indera that he has with himself is this battle of like, what does it mean to be there for my family? Because mm -hmm half of Darrow is convinced that being home with them, doing what's being the type of father that Severo is, or at least wants to be or would be given the circumstance is what half of Darrow is convinced is the right thing to do. Mm -hmm. And the other half of him believes that without a just society, without the, the hammer, right. Breaking things in order to rebuild, like that is necessary as provision for his family. Mm -hmm. And he is split. Um, Which and, makes him so interesting. Yeah, And it does make him interesting. But I think the half of him that feels very convicted that he's doing the wrong thing, because he can never be at peace with, with the split like it's that. It's not supposed to be. That's not who it is. I agree. Not, not the design. But then his best friend comes in and calls out like this half <laughs> of, of his soul of what he mm -hmm. believes can be right. And that's what breaks him so bad is because Severo is in essence half correct that, yeah. that Darrow isn't there for his family, but at the same time that yeah, he is in another sense. So yeah, yeah, I, I understand why that hurts him, but if it just straight up wasn't true and Darrow wasn't convicted that it was true, it wouldn't be a cutting insult. Yeah. I, I'm not going to, defend yeah. Sephiro to, I, the, I know, I'm, I'm not, <laughs> to the end. I'm and not I'm a, also not wanting to beat this point to death to the point where like, I'm just telling everyone, hey, Severo sucks everyone. That's not what I'm saying. I'm saying he's a bad hang and he's been a really bad character in this set of chapters. And 
I don't, I, I, I need, you need to show me the victories that he's, that he's tallying up. If, the, if you don't agree with me, like, tell me I'm wrong. Like, seriously. And also, sh- but show me. Because, like, just because we like a character doesn't mean they're right. Like, we like Lysander, and he's definitely not right a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, I mean, Quicksilver, we, you, like, mentioned how much you like him, and but you don't agree with him. You don't right. agree with his stance. Like... Um, and like all the Raws, <laughs> we like them, <laughs> uh, except for Atlas. Uh, we like them, but we don't believe in what they do. So either way, most unexpected thing that happened from this section of chapters. I think there's only one answer. Is there? Yeah. Did we already talk about yeah. it? Yeah. Okay. So it's the, it's the reveal. It's the imposter. Yeah. It's, that's it. It's the truth night or lack thereof. <laughs> truth night. Yeah. Helios used to be the truth night. Oh, it's, I'm sorry. I was like, he's the fear knight, bro. <laughs> like Atlas is the fear knight. No, that's the fear knight. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. No, Helios was, like, was the truth knight. Yeah, yeah. And at least the truth knight's arms were on. <laughs> and eyes. <laughs> and eyes. Jeez. Oh, man. Um, is that is that an interest? The only thing I'm going to say about this, because we have, we will beat this thing to death if we keep going on about it. Yeah. Um, is that some sort of irony that the truth knight was in fact a lie? I like it. And I'm sure Pierce did that intentionally. <laughs> it's just like, cool, I can build this like really interesting like protagonist, antagonist, you know, whatever you want to call him. Yeah. He's kind of both. Um, and I can build him up and kind of make him essential. And even though he's not like necessarily like fun, but he's essential. And then he's the truth knight. And then I'm going to have the fear knight take over his body essentially. The, and like, yeah, yeah that be a lie. It's the greatest duplicity in the book yet. <laughs> yeah. Really, yeah. I might be attaching myself a little bit too hard to that, so, but it, it's quite interesting. I don't think so. Um, yeah, that's the only answer. I think that there's a lot of other things that were like shocking, but it's mm-hmm. like it'd be weird to be like say something was most more unexpected than that, and that's the idea of the category. What was the most unexpected thing? And so, who does that award go to? Do we mail that to Helios? Do we mail it to Atlas? Like, who does that one go to? We'll go to Helios just because of a, he had a bad go of it. He did. All right, brother. Yeah. <laughs> You're getting you get, a nice you award. Get the award. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, that's pretty much it. Yeah. I think that's it. Anything else you want to talk about? Anything? Uh, I mean, we covered it quite a bit, actually. Yeah. No, I, but think, I think we're good for let's, now. Let's recap these awards real fast and then let's get out of here. Uh, awards favorite chapter. Yours was a Lysander chapter. It was chapter 45. Mine was chapter 49, Lysander. Your favorite quote was from. Darrow, chapter 48. There you go. And mine was uh, chapter 52, Darrow, but Cassius and Darrow, mostly Cassius, highlighting Cassius. We both had Cassius as yeah. our favorite character. Cassius is getting, yeah, yeah a lot of awards. Uh, worst character so far, yours was Fa, mine yeah. was Severo. <laughs> and then the most unexpected thing we shared that in common. So like it was the, is the Helios uh, reveal. I also want to say that this is two weeks in a row that we've uh, shared two categories in common. So we've had a little bit of overlap each time. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Uh, there we go. So we'll be doing the next part of part three next week, uh, which is called Tempest. And we'll be finishing that off. And then we'll only have one more podcast left uh, to, for the reread, which is the last part, part four, which is called Brothers. Any uh, predictions? I don't even want to. No. Yeah. Okay. I, I honestly don't want to. I mean, I haven't. Like, I mean, anything broad, like the character death will occur or is that part four? Like anything like part, that? I think part four now. I know last podcast you predicted that the the character death will be part three. I did. I have a feeling it's now it's coming towards the end of the book. Okay. I, it's cutting closer to the end of the book. Um, 
So I have no idea what's going to happen with Lysander, though, and Atlas. Like, I just couldn't... Because because everything that's happened with these two characters has been so unexpected, I can't project forward now at all. Yeah. Um, I So as a teaser for next episode, when you asked me if I wanted to talk about anything else, mm-hmm. I almost said yes. But I want to save it because... Cool. The idea of um, Lysander talking about assuming the mantle of the Lightbringer and working with Atlas, there's this quick little line about how he wants to go along with them and then murder them in the end. Yes. And then bring about his yeah. just society. Yeah. Uh, that intrigues me, and I'm hoping a little more light is shed on that kind of duplicity that he has toward accepting the mantle. Mm-hmm. So we can talk about it next episode, hopefully. We will see. Until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. The Hail Reaper team is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. Our theme music, Passage, was composed by Jacob Albaum, with production and sound design by Tim Mount. Thanks to our pinecone cousin, Pierce Brown, for creating the beloved Red Rising Saga. And thanks to all of you for listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become a Hail Reaper Howler and get additional content, check out our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Hail Reaper. You can follow us on Instagram, YouTube, and Twitter at Hail Reaper Pod. And please leave a five-star review on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. It helps others like you discover the show and is much appreciated. Until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper.